Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe in shit I hear on podcasts, and I hope you don't either. Please be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you can do for me is to let me know. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear and I don't bleep anything out. So listener discretion is advised. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 89 of Living Through Extinction, a short-to-the-point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find cool that I want to learn more about. It's a short one today, as I've combined the positive and research segment. Today, I talk about the Fox sisters and how they started the spiritualism movement, a rise in banned chemicals in the atmosphere, a rare form of parasite affecting sea otters, and some of the exciting products being developed to help with early detection and treatment with Alzheimer's. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. I really do appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. And if you're interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segment and thank yous. On episode 64, I talked about the Cottingley fairies and the little girls who fooled thousands with their supposed photographs of fairies. Were you aware of the fact that another pair of little girls are credited with accidentally beginning the entire spiritualism movement in the 19th century? Talk about a silly prank getting way out of hand. Maggie and Kate Fox lived in a tiny one-bedroom cottage in Hydesville, New York with their parents. They also had an older sister who was a music teacher away from home. On March 31st, 1848, after the girls had been sent to bed, their parents started to hear some strange noises. The sounds seemed to be coming from the house itself. This one from the floorboards, that one from the ceiling, another from the doorframe? The family ended up in the bedroom where it seemed to be the loudest. Their mother, certain something demonic was afoot, sent their father to get the neighbors. Several people ended up in the room that evening and all heard the strange knocking sounds. One man who was present began asking questions and everyone was surprised when he started getting knocking responses. He continued with a series of questions until it had been agreed that the spirit was a 31-year-old peddler who had been murdered for money and then buried under the fox's home by a previous tenant to the land. After this, people began coming to the house to experience this knocking ghost and soon word spread about the Hydesville haunting. Older sister Leah was teaching a class when a student read an article aloud from a newspaper about it. She didn't understand what was going on and so went home to see for herself. News traveled quite slowly back then, and by the time she learned about it and got herself back home, the house had been abandoned. Crowds of locals had been coming to their home every day, and it just became too much for them. In order to escape, they moved to a friend's house in a neighboring village. Leah, it turned out, was not as naive as her parents and most of the locals from her hometown. When her sisters demonstrated for her, she quickly called them on the trickery. Maggie and Kate, who had been holding it in, all this time, finally burst and confessed to her that they had figured out how to make the sounds by cracking their toes against the wood in the small house with no observable movements. They figured out when they cracked their toes against this surface or that, it amplified the sounds and the rap sounded strange and echoey, kind of traveled through the wood. They were wrong to think it was finally over, however. 
older sister Leah saw opportunity and made them continue to keep their secret so she could exploit them. She moved them into a house with her in Rochester, New York, and started charging a whole dollar for people to come attend seances with them. They were an instant sensation, attracting high society clientele, including editors and poets. Soon their famous spirit mediums had them performing in New York, New England, and more. The girls were not happy with this life their older sister had thrust upon them, though. They wanted out, even spelling out, we will now bid you farewell in a November 1849 performance in hopes that would be the end of it. They stopped just two weeks, however, before their sister pushed them back into it again. The rapping, which all began as a joke, set off a movement of other people claiming to be able to do the same. By 1850, it was a nationwide craze, with 40 families in upstate New York alone claiming to have the skill. And so spiritualism grew. Both of the girls, unhappy with their lives, unfortunately succumbed to alcoholism in adulthood. In 1888, 40 years after it all began, Maggie publicly confessed. New York World paid her $1,500 for the exclusive, which just gave people reason to say she was lying. In the confession, she explained that they never expected it to go as far as it did, and she was not happy living a lie. The girls had thought that since the next day was April Fool's Day, everyone would realize it was a joke. They never in a million years expected to be believed, never mind have it take on a life of its own. It was a prank created to leave their boredom when they were alone in their beds at night. She gave a demonstration to everyone present, and her sister Kate was there confirming everything. Unfortunately, honesty doesn't pay the bills. When the woman realized that they had no other way of making an income, they took it all back. Older sister Leah thrived in the deception. She became a woman of society and married a Wall Street banker. Maggie, however, expressed before passing in 1895 that she did not take pride in having begun the spiritual movement, and in fact felt tarnished by her part in it, and a deep shame for having been dependent on it for most of her life. It's too bad the members of their family hadn't been more skeptical, damn it. pretty sure that chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs have come up on the show before, but my memory could be faulty there. CFCs are very strong greenhouse gases, the production of which were to be phased out by 2010 in accordance with the Montreal Protocol. The reason for this was the damage being done to the Earth's ozone layer. It was realized in the 80s that CFCs were creating a hole in the main piece of protection we have on this planet from the sun. So they were banned, and the products that used to carry them, such as refrigerators, aerosols, and insulation foam, no longer do. Yet, according to a study published in the journal Nature Geoscience, five of these banned ozone-depleting chemicals went up in our atmosphere between 2010 and 2020. This has been confirmed with measurements made by several different groups around the world. Even different measuring methods were used in some cases, and they all came up with the same result. While nobody has been able to figure out where it's coming from geographically, I read that it's unlikely to be North America or Europe due to their well-developed monitoring networks. It appears to have begun to decrease again over the last few years, but answers are still being sought. Researchers are calling for updates to the Montreal Protocol and encouraging more CFC monitoring worldwide. A rare strain of Toxoplasma gondii is going after sea otters and proving to be extremely virulent. The strain was first discovered in Canadian mountain lions back in 1995, but has never before been detected on the California coast and has never before been seen in aquatic animals. 
One researcher said that in 25 years of study, they had never observed such high numbers of a parasite in otters. They exist throughout the entire body with the exception of the brain and cause an inflammation of the fat throughout the body. At least four have been killed by the infection. Risks are not yet clear, but there is a possibility of contamination to the environment and the marine food chain. This, obviously, would eventually work its way to us. While most humans are immune, the parasite has been known to cause miscarriages and neurological disease for some. The study information is from the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the University of California, Davis. It was published in the journal Frontiers in Marine Science. Today's research segment is also a positive segment. Alzheimer's is something that we've experienced in my own family, as well as the family of my husband. It's a fear of mine losing my faculties. Not that I'm all there to begin with, but you know what I mean. I went down a rabbit hole of some of the latest research and the tech helping with early detection and treatment and would like to take a moment to share some of them today. Research headed by the charity Alzheimer's Research UK has resulted in a product by a company called Edon. Their system combines digital data measurements with traditional sources such as brain imaging and memory tests, and AI is used to analyze the data. Their product is a piece of wearable tech that would allow for much earlier diagnosis when it comes to Alzheimer's. Early detection can make a big difference for some people. Intervention can begin much earlier, which is key to preventing the progression of the disease. Advanced Alzheimer's disease is not generally reversible, so preventing progression is huge, particularly before the disease is clinically apparent. I read that the changes in cognitive, motor, and sensory functions tend to occur years before the earliest clinical manifestations can be picked up. The device is collecting information on a person's gait, movements, heart rate, patterns of sleep, and other things. It's easy to wear and can be made widely available. Current cognitive tests have their limits, especially when it comes to the time required. A wearable tech could be the key to overcoming this. I've talked before about how products coming out can provide real-time information in a way that random testing could never do. This is the same. It would provide more constant and instantaneous readings. The Accelerated Detection of Disease program is looking to recruit 5 million volunteers to wear the devices and share all of the data as a contribution to research in not just Alzheimer's, but cancers and heart disease as well. Hopefully I'll get to do a follow-up on this product at some point. A person's gait, the way they walk, is one of many things that can provide early detection clues of possible dementia-related diseases. The GAIT Sensor Project at Newcastle University's Human Movement Science Department is working on the detection of change in gait speed, stride, and symmetry, along with other things that may be warning signs of the beginning of a disease. Someone with early-onset Alzheimer's disease will find that their fine motor movements slow down and or become more clumsy. If these can be detected while they're still slight and not really noticeable by us, that can make a big difference in the stage one is in when diagnosed. Again, early diagnosis being key. I will be watching for updates on this as it progresses as well. This next one is wild. The biosensor being developed by researchers with the Simon Fraser University Nano Device Fabrication Group is able to detect the specific proteins which are put out when certain diseases or tumors are present. It would be usable for a variety of diseases, including Alzheimer's. The protein to be detected for early onset Alzheimer's is a cytokine called tumor necrosis factor alpha or TNF-alpha. If TNF-alpha is present in abnormally high levels, it could be a sign of a few different things, including Alzheimer's. 
With current methods, a spinal tap has to be done to test for biomarker proteins in the cerebral spinal fluid. So the goal was to come up with a less invasive, possibly wearable device. I don't know if you know anything about spinal taps, but they are incredibly painful, and I'm pretty sure they can't give you anything for the pain while the procedure is being done. Anyway, the sensitivity of their biosensors makes them even better than a spinal tap, as it can detect these things even earlier. This one has passed the proof of concept stage, and clinical trials are next. Their work has been published in the journal Nature Communications. I can't wait to do an update on this one. It's fucking fascinating. Scientists at the University of Birmingham have also developed a new sensor. This one measures weak magnetic signals in the brain with magnetoencephalography, or... MEG. Let's stick with MEG. It can be used to detect possible injury, schizophrenia, or dementia. Apparently, it's easier to specifically localize an issue with MEG than with EEG, which results in an earlier and more accurate diagnosis. It's also supposed to be better at distinguishing brain signals from background magnetic noise than sensors before it. Right now, our machines have to be kept in a special ward so as not to have any magnetic interference. This would make that unnecessary. Current systems also require constant cool temperatures and bulky helium cooling systems. This one does not. The university has filed a patent application for the design of their sensor and are currently using it in their own diagnostic equipment. Claims are that this could provide the earliest possible detection for many diseases which require early detection in order to have positive outcomes. And that it could be used to pinpoint brain injuries in a way we could never do before. Their work has been published in Neural Image, and this is the one that has me the most excited. Earliest possible detection of neurodegeneration and pinpointing injury. That's pretty amazing. And the fact that it's already being used in their equipment. I hope this becomes something we have available in all medical centers someday. Losing one's faculties is a scary thing, as is loving someone who's losing theirs. But as time passes, hope in these areas does grow. When my great-grandmother had Alzheimer's, there was nothing they could really do for her other than keep her close and keep an eye on her. 50 years later, and all this progress has been made. Imagine where we might be with diseases such as this in another 50 years. Assuming theocracies and anti-science folk don't take over the world and end valid research, that is. I am done for today. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube for short weekly skeptical videos. Thank you for joining me. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project three and a half years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my household for putting up with me. You really are all the best. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 90 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, and TikTok and under LTE Pod on Twitter and Hive. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. 